everybody. Welcome to this week's Pro Video Coalition podcast. I'm Damien Allen with Moviola.com. And this week, Scott and I divide and conquer. Scott spends a bit of time with Adobe's Van Bedient, getting the lowdown on Adobe's new collaboration system, Productions, and its implications for facilities using Premiere Pro with local and shared storage. And I take some time with Pro Video Coalition author and cinematographer Brian Hallett to hear about his experience with the new Sony FX9 and the Canon C500 Mark II, and find out if January 2020 is the right time to buy a camera. Let's dig right on in. And we are rolling now. Welcome to another uh, Pro Video Coalition podcast. This one's a little bit different than the usual sort of roundtable chat and the news catch-up that we do uh, on a semi-regular, semi-weekly basis. Because this time, it's just myself here, Scott Simmons, and I'm chatting with Van Bedient from Adobe. And what we're talking about today is what Adobe announced on uh, the starting day of Sundance, which was January 23rd on Thursday, a new feature coming to Premiere, which is uh, Adobe Premiere Pro Productions, which instead of me trying to explain it, I'm going to let Van uh, jump on and explain what that is. But first of all, Van, thanks for uh, stepping out of the Adobe headquarters and joining us for a little uh, quick little chat here about Productions. It's my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really glad to be here. Yeah, so I guess the first thing probably anybody, uh, you know, when you think about productions is, uh, you know, productions in the product term as in Adobe Productions, not we are doing a movie production or whatever, is it's all about collaboration. Is that kind of a, is that a safe, safe thing to say that it's all about collaboration? Or is this something that even like the single, single user can make use of? You know, we, we, designed it with collaborative users in mind. Um, but we certainly, as we started to build it and started to recognize other use cases, can see a lot of value even for a single user, sort of creating either a, a library of, of lots of different projects that they've worked on, a library for, for lack of a better term, or just componentizing their project if they're dealing with a lot of footage uh, is really gonna help performance efficiency and just the overall experience I'll be much more positive. Now, you use the term library, not to be confused with the library panel, which already exists in, in the, the, all of the Adobe suite, um, two, two separate things, right? Thank you. Thank you for clarifying that. Yes, a very important point. It's, it's not a Creative Cloud library. I just sort of meant it in the, in the more of a, a project archive type of, uh, of scenario or, again, just, again, componentizing your project so that everything doesn't need to be in one folder, one container, it can be broken up into intelligent components, and that makes it a lot more scalable, a lot more, again, fluid to work within Premiere Pro. Now, productions, when it ships, will live as a panel within, within Premiere, right? Correct. Um, so we, we've had a lot of questions about that. There is no, um, there's no uh, cloud connection required. It's not a cloud-hosted uh, feature. It's just directly in Premiere Pro. All you need to make it work is Premiere Pro and some, some storage and and your media to make it all come together. All right, well, let's try to separate it from a couple of other collaborative things that already exist in Premiere. First, I think, would probably be uh, team projects, which came along you know, a, a few years ago. I can't remember which version team project shipped in. How is productions going to differ from team projects? It's a great question, and you know, there's certainly some parallels and intersections between the two products. Um, we, we feel they still serve sort of two different markets very effectively. And we actually felt the need for, for both just based on working with customers and getting a lot of feedback about their workflow and 
the challenges they have with large amounts of media, et cetera. Uh, so team projects is essentially a cloud hosted project where the metadata lives in creative cloud, the media lives locally. Uh, it serves some really great purposes of helping you span across distances. If I'm working with um, perhaps somebody, a graphic artist in Chicago, but I'm in Los Angeles and uh, our colorist is in New York, theme projects can really help sort of bring everybody together by using synchronized media or proxy media across a distance. Um, it's also, you know, really well suited for, um, you know, those type of remote workflows where um, not everybody's on the same system or connected to the same storage. Okay, so team projects, I'm thinking, uh, yes, I'm thinking cloud, I'm thinking um, cl collaborating through the cloud in a sense, though not all your media is necessarily stored up in the cloud. It's its own world. Okay, so shared projects, which came, which came along after team projects, seems to be uh, productions is a, is, a, is a step beyond shared projects or is shared projects a piece of productions or are they totally separate things as well? So great, great question. And, and productions is really an evolution of our, our first iteration of shared projects. And it was really sort of the end game we've been working towards all along. It just took uh, milestones to get us to that point. Um, productions is, is essentially a replacement for the shared projects quote unquote workflow that we've had in place for a while. And we're very excited. There's some really powerful changes that have really made it uh, you know, much more effective. And we've had fantastic feedback from customers that we've given previews or early access to. Well, yeah, okay, so that's good to hear because I think some of the questions I saw around the internet today was how how productions relate you know, relates to shared projects. And if it's like, is it a replacement or is it uh, along with? And, you know, I saw a couple of comments about, okay, it's just, you know, it's, it's maybe fixing shared pro projects or maybe, you know, I think that was probably a negative um, comment about productions, but I kind of was sort of defending it saying, well, I think if it does replace shared projects, which you said, that's what it sounds like it's going to do. I think that's okay. If it's, you know, evolving into bigger and better features because, you know, as, as someone who often collaborates with other editors, I like the idea of, you know, giving me something early on that works and then, you know, make it better in, in future iterations. And that's what, I guess that's what it sounds like is productions is, is, you know, shared projects, you know, plus, plus, plus. Exactly. And they use the word evolution as, as truly what it is. And we, we thrive on working closely with customers to get feedback to help improve our products again understand their their challenges the the requirements that they have in their cutting rooms for the type of content and we're constantly listening to customers to take feedback to to make improvements so this is really again an evolution of our first step in this and we're really excited and, and you talk about collaboration it's a word that's thrown around a lot and it, and it has various applications to, to me it ultimately comes down to if you have a lot of people working together on the same content uh, you know how can you make sure that uh, it's it's effectively keeping track of versions that you're not overriding anybody's work that you know in a fast-paced environment with a lot of media again coming through and going very quickly um, how do you stay organized and how do you stay efficient so it's really an answer to a lot of those challenges that we've heard from customers and again the feedback's been incredibly positive we're very excited to get it in the market well I think when you looked at the uh, the video that came out today and the uh, the blog post about it, it you know there there is a lot of questions that I think people you know probably ask cuz because we don't know all the features of it just yet and we can't download it yet and start working on it but you know take the whole the folder structure thing that I saw in the video where there was the the panel in premiere 
and then you saw the Mac Finder window sitting next to it. It looked like that the production panel is just mirroring what you're seeing in the Finder. And if I if I looked at it right, if you you know create a new folder in the pro, in the production panel, then that new folder is created in the Finder. And if you move files around in the Finder, those same you know that movement of files is reflected in the um, in the production panel. So on the one hand, it it, it, all, it looks like okay, this is just another way to view my folders on disk, but it, it it seems like okay that's that would be easy to create like how 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 is it how is it more than just me looking at the folders and the and the premiere projects i've created sitting on my disk it's a great question um it, it, and you you're correct from what you saw in the video it it is a one to one relationship with the folder on disk so administrative changes that are made on either level are immediately reflected um, it wasn't necessarily designed as much with that in mind as it was that there are multiple users in the production at one time, and everybody's creating new projects, renaming projects, making new projects as they go. So it creates that fluid environment where multiple people are sort of administering the project or, again, renaming, changing bins, creating new projects, creating new folders and new levels of organization seamlessly without having to uh, in interrupt each other or have one person worrying about permissions of I'm changing the name of something while well, you're changing the name of something. So um, th that's one part of it. <clears throat> it. It is quite a bit more complex, though, than just putting a folder on disk and adding a bunch of projects to it. Um, we've done a lot of work to uh, create and re-architect the data model inside Premiere Pro Productions. So things like uh, that customers may have run into before, such as duplicate clips when you're moving sequences around uh, and there's, you know, end up with multiple copies of clips, that's completely gone away with productions. We've really solved that with a new architecture that we've built under the hood. And we're really proud that we uh, were able to, and it's mentioned in the blog, to prove some of that on, on very high-profile productions such as Terminator, Dark Fate, or, or Dolomite is my name with Netflix, which were obviously you know a lot of media, very fast-paced environments. The underlying technology of productions and this new data model called cross-project referencing is really a lot of the power, and it's under the hood, but it really makes a difference as far as efficiency, keeping projects small, very fast and, and you know, opening and very fluid. So that's something we're really excited about. It's it's not you know completely represented in the video and I'm glad to have a chance to talk to you about it here, but it's something that kind of has to be seen to believe. And when we've shown it to customers, they've just literally said, I need this now. This is really an incredible breakthrough and, and really something we've really hoped to see in Premiere. So again, couldn't be more excited. Well, okay, let's talk about duplicate clips for a second because that's a very sp specific, uh, you know, thing that happens sometimes in Premiere. And I'm gonna give you a couple, of, you know, a couple of examples of what I'm gonna ask. Like, if th this happens in a Premiere project now, and you can tell me whether, you know, th th is there a new project architecture that maybe helps this not happen, or if this is something specific to production. For example, I have clips in a bin. I edit those clips into the timeline. If I delete the clips out of the bin, those clips are deleted out of a timeline. It, it sounds like, is that still the, the, the way that's going to work with, with productions, or is there some kind of new architecture that will let me have a clip in a timeline that doesn't actually live in the a bin in the project? Yeah, what, what you said, the, the latter half there. So you can have just a sequence in a project with no reference clips, no duplicate clips, no reference copies of those clips that are, are contained in that sequence at all. The clips now remember their parent-child relationships, and the sequence remembers its parent-child relationships with the clips. So, 
Um, really what we're expecting is just the elimination of any instances of duplicate clips. You can obviously you know, consciously make duplicates of sequence if you wanted to branch versions, um, but the system, the way it's designed, really doesn't make it easy to um, to ever see a duplicate clip or to overwrite anybody's work. It's it's designed very thoughtfully in that in that sense. I got you. So is that is that a kind of a, a new architecturing? I don't know if that's even a word. Architecturing specific to um, a production's Premiere Pro project, or if you just if you just open up a future version Premiere, create a new project, will you get some of those same advantages working in just a, a single user in a single project? That that new architecture or that new data model will be specific to Adobe Productions. Okay. Uh, so it's uh, it's again something um, that we've actually we you know, we have a, a team that's been focused a lot on narrative workflows and episodic and feature and documentary and that's the team that's been working closely with these customers. Um, this was really designed with a lot of input from them and it's already been proven on major productions. So it, it is a pretty significant change, but um, it, again, it was done over time with a lot of consideration and a lot of feedback directly from customers about. Um, how to make the the system just overall more efficient, more fluid, and and more organized. Gotcha. All right. Well, let's talk about. I think a couple of things I I was reading where there I think there's some misconceptions of what and maybe it's people people don't understand how Premiere works versus you know Avid or something like that. But um, the the media management of the all the media will still be somewhat similar in productions as well, and I mean that in that. You have a Premiere Pro project file, or you know your your Premiere Pro project file, that does not con contain media in the Premiere Pro project. Your media lives on disk, on shared storage, on your local storage, what you know wherever that might be, and that could be your you know your your video files, your audio files, your graphics files, you know your After Effects con you know After Effects files and things like that. So I think I saw some some a couple of comments where people thought like that oh productions means you bring all the media into this into the you know quote unquote adobe production but media still has to be managed in a in a proper way just like it has to be in this day and age even when you're using adobe pr productions if i'm if if that make that makes sense right yeah, that that is accurate. That that paradigm hasn't changed as far as um, you know, clips or sequences or uh, compositions of After Effects, etc., can live within a, a project. They are just linking to media that's on disk wherever you've um, put it and and informed the application. That's where it is. Uh, the production folder, however, though the production panel, which is the new panel that's being introduced as part of the production workflow, um, is designed a little bit differently in that it only supports folders and Premiere Pro project elements. So as we kind of componentize the project, break it up into lots of smaller folders instead of just one big container of all the media, um, it's easily organized within the production panel. And within the production panel, we don't support putting clips and sequences directly. And it's, it's again, designed to be very clean and organized, but quick access to um, your content and, and very flexible as far as how you want to organize your content because an, an episodic show might do it quite differently than a documentary who might do it quite differently than a feature film. One of the other things that's important in the production panel is we've, we've globalized and centralized all the settings for all the projects. So things like autosave and where your render files are going to be targeted to, your scratch disk can all be um, set up in one place in the production panel and that will ripple throughout anybody using the production and any project that's a part of the production. 
Oh, I see. Okay, so so will that be sort of a new preference within, uh, you know, within Premiere itself, where when you're part of a production, everybody like, is there one sort of uh, master user that sets the scratch, that sets you know all those those master settings for all the people in the production? Correct. Um, well, that's cool. I mean, I like the idea that you know, set it. I won't say like set it and forget it. I believe what was that? That was like some kind of. Um, like a Ron Popeil cooking device for your kitchen. You set it and forget it. But like one person can set it, then you can forget it and everybody, um, everybody's good to go at that point. But I'm sure, I, I mean, that obviously means that, you know, there's a lot of talk about shared storage with, with productions. That means that all your users are on the same shared storage. One person, uh, you know, the master administrator sets those things, I, you know, hopefully before everybody goes to work, those never change throughout the um, production. But so, does that mean like if um, you know if if one editor's working on on uh, you know scene three and they render a bunch of stuff, another editor pulls scene three into the string out of the show. Those renders and stuff that the scene three editor uh, rendered, when they pull that into the master string out of the show, all those renders and stuff will come across into the master string out and not need any. I mean, you'll still get the the sequence with all the clips in there, but you'll get the renders that come along with it. So no need to re-render or anything like that. If I'm if if I'm reading that correctly, exactly. Um, and you know, as we kind of talked about up front, it was largely designed around collaborative work groups on shared storage. The same concept does apply even for a single user on local storage. Again, there's still value in using productions uh, if you're working with a lot of content to again help com componentize, make uh, lighter elements that are easier, quicker access, um, not a lot of indexing and loading of uh, media. You can kind of go right to the section you want to work on. So it does work great on local storage, obviously optimized for multi-user shared storage environments. Gotcha. We use, use the word content, and I, um, it made me think of sometimes when I teach Premiere, I, I use almost like a sort of a funnel or a pyramid to try to explain, especially to really new new users, new people, you know, people that are new to video editing in general, the world of, you know, you have your hard drive here and you have all your, your media. Think about your, you know, your, again, your audio, your video, your Photoshop files, your, your uh, graphics, things like that. You know, those all live on, you know, at the bottom of the uh, inverted or in the bottom of the pyramid. It's not really inverted. They live at the bottom of the pyramid, if you will. And as you start stacking things on top, so, you know, you drop the Premiere Pro project above all that media and the media lives below the Premiere Pro project at the bottom, you know, the wide part of the pyramid. And then mm -hmm. continuing up to the point inside, you know, above the Premiere Pro project, you have your sequences, you have your bins that sort of contain all the data that points back to all that media at the bottom of the, of the pyramid. I think when I've drawn that on a whiteboard before to new, you know, people new to editing, it kind of helps them understand how, you know, be it a Premiere Pro project, an Avid project, or, a, you know, a, a Final Cut library with unmanaged media, you know, those are just pointer files looking back to all that media on disk. So if I'm reading this right, the, um, the Premiere Pro productions will probably sit, you've got your media at the bottom of the pyramid, then pr production sits above the media, and then the Premiere Pro project sits above productions, and then above the project file is where your sequences and your bins are within the project. So it's just another layer above the media to help keep everything organized, if that made any sense whatsoever. Yeah, the, you know, one of the ways I like to kind of think about it is, you know, if you look at just a regular folder on a computer, we call it a directory, we call it a folder, whatever we might call it, um, you know, bins and, and projects in, in the NLE world are really just containers, they're folders or directories, and they have some special 
um, understanding of metadata and fields and, and some behaviors that are programmed in, but ultimately it's just a container. And if, if you think about sort of Premiere Pro and its, its architecture of having that single project file, and, and we're really happy to open the ability to have multiple project files uh, in previous releases, we, we announced that capability. But if you put everything from uh, your entire computer into one folder on your computer, that computer is going to be pretty slow every time you try to open it because it's just got you know, tens or thousands or hundreds of thousands of files in there that it's got to index and sort through every time you open it. So kind of the similar concept with a Premiere Pro project uh, works very well for, for small and medium and even large size projects. But when you get into really, really large amounts of footage, it can be challenging to put everything into a single container or a single directory. So uh, pr productions allows us to componentize the project into really sensible elements and however you want to divide them. We don't we don't dictate in any way or shape or form how how you should break it up. Everybody's going to work a little bit differently and we love that. But we're just giving folks the tools to help make their project and their, their overall experience with Premiere much more efficient when dealing with large, large amounts of media or even wanting to reference, again, projects that they've done before and kind of keep that. Uh, I won't use the word library again. Thank you for <laughs> but, but to keep an archive of projects or just being able to open things fluidly um, without having to search around. So the organization of it and just the kind of clean efficiency of it is really one of the big strengths. Well, let me uh, correct me if I'm wrong here on uh, shared projects, which you know, we where I talked about shared projects came first and this has evolved into productions. Uh, sort of the proper uses of shared products in the past was you almost had sort of a master shared you had a master premiere pro project at, at the top of your shared projects maybe tree i guess and then you had um like you know i'm thinking parent child relationship you had the master shared project then you had everybody else working in sort of child projects off that parent shared project mm -hmm. is, is is that a, was that a correct understanding of how the concept of shared projects was worked that that yeah that's that's fairly correct the um I, I, if, if we want to think of it in kind of the paradigm view, you might look at the production as, as a kind of superset folder that contains all these project files. So the, the production sort of becomes the new quote unquote project. Okay. The project files sort of behave like bins, like everybody's used to. And then traditional bins in Premiere Pro can now be subfolders and additional levels of organization. So we're just adding more flexibility and more levels of organization. but overall the way it comes together in a really nice clean interface uh, with multi-users you know, the, the the master project had some limitations also we, you know, we talked about duplicates one of the other challenges we had with that that version of shared projects was the master project also had the, the sense of project locking so sort of only one person was kind of administering the project or renaming or creating new new projects at any one given time so that was certainly one of the things we set out to solve with productions well, when you look at um, when you talk about sort of a master project, and if production becomes like that master project, when I look at uh, you know the the uh, one of like the images today where we see the the panel versus sitting next to the uh, the the finder window, like the one I'm looking at right now, you've got uh, the production is called episodic production, and when you look at the finder window on the right, you know you see the folders, the various folders that has um, the premier projects in there, and then at the very top level of that finder window, you see a folder called episodic production but I, I and i'm thinking that a uh, a production you know you create a new production and you name it it becomes a folder on the disk but in the background there's a it's more than just a folder because if i name my new production in this example it's called episodic production 
I get a folder called episodic production, but somewhere in the, in the architecture back there, there's a whole lot more stuff going on because it's not just only creating a folder. You're absolutely right, and I, I can't reveal all the secrets about Under the Hood yet, but it is much more than a folder in the okay. way it behaves and, and the way it, it manages the contents of that folder um, and the behavior of the items inside that folder. So um, it's, uh, again, a, you know, a lot of thought and planning. Uh, I mean, our team spent a lot of effort getting this done, and that, that's why we're so excited to get it to market. And uh, you know, I think, I think we're going to see really great feedback about it. Well, that's uh, one more one more thing, and then I'll I'll let you go because I was chatting with Matt uh, Christensen on Twitter a little bit today, talking about uh, you know Avid Mini Composer is sort of the you know I guess the the gold standard for project sharing collaboration as it you know it as you know as well as I do it's been around forever, and then many yeah. many movies and TV shows are are cut on it, but. I think that, uh, you know, and this has been a discussion that's kind of happened for years that, you know, Avid sort of project architecture where when you look at an Avid project file, it's a folder with all kinds of stuff in it. You know, you got settings files, you got all this, you know, all this weird stuff. You don't know what it is, but you have these .avb files, which are the Avid video bin files. And you've always been able to reach into a, an Avid project and just, you could share one, but you could email a bin all by itself. You know, it was, it was a very flexible way of working. And, um... Uh, and I think Premiere is kind of like the old Final Cut 7, like everything lives within that one file, that one project file. And, and you know, those files, you know, in the past could bloat to be where they're really, really big. But they that was remedied years ago, thankfully. But um, what we talked about was this idea that it felt like that the uh, Premiere in productions, that a project was almost being used like a bin, where instead of, uh, you know, having a bunch of bins in one project, you have a whole bunch of projects, which may literally be like one bin and may contain just one scene. Is that kind of the, the thinking behind it? Is it, is it? is it weird to say like, oh, you can use a project like a bin in this new productions architecture? In, um, it's a great question. And I think in the sense that I described that, you know, whether we call it a bin or a project or whatever the terminology is, it's it's really a container or a folder or directory as far as a computer is concerned. And um, I, I would say, yeah, it, it's it's a good analogy to compare sort of the way an, an ABV file would compare to uh, a project in, in sort of the way that we've componentized the architecture of the project within productions. Um, we, we have also, as you mentioned, done done consideration and put in features for uh, folks who need to perhaps um, take a bin to a remote location to a shoot or 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 home. Excuse me, I said bin. Take a project to a remote location or to a shoot or on location or on set and be able to bring that back in and add it in as back as part of the production when any of those changes. So there's certainly consideration for for those workflows built in. Um, and the the nice one of the nice part about that type of workflow and that does happen. There there are certainly um, I can't say projects or productions. There are certainly <laughs> content creation processes that happen where that's not allowed, and, and we certainly understand that. So um, not everybody's going to be able to benefit from that. But for the folks who do, one of the nice things is that being as a project file and the way Premiere defines settings, there's no chance you're going to make a mistake of, well, on set we set it up as 23.98, but the production's ah. actually before and if some if some people some people might be listening and know what I'm talking about when that kind of happens that can be really challenging so it's nice that if you take that project remotely and you work on it the settings are kind of already defined because it has that extra level of settings within a project architecture 
but again, it fluidly comes right back in and joins into the production and everybody benefits from uh, all the work that was done remotely that's now part of the production that everybody's collaborating on. Oh, interesting, interesting. That's kind of cool. I, I, th I think there's probably quite a few little things like that that it, 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 it feels like it's it's bigger than, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's bigger than just sort of what, you know, the, the, it, what it looks like on the surface if you just were to watch the, uh, the video or, or read the blog post. And, and I, I think most people realize there's more to it than, than just, you know, it's just a new way to, um, to look at folders. I think one thing that I was wondering specifically is if I'm, you know, I'm an editor working in a production, and I take this example that was put online today where I see, you know, a graphics bin, a music bin, a music alts bin, a stock bin, a VO bin, or, or a project, I, I keep saying bin, but that, those are all individual premiere projects, of, you know, like 07 VO project, uh, 05 uh, sound effects project. If I'm working in a production and say I have my personal project, which is like, you know, Scott, Scott scene six or whatever, if I need to get into uh, the VO or the sound effects or the music project, is, is what is my mechanism to get in there? Is it still using the media browser? Um, you, just, you actually, in, in, within the production panel, any one of those projects, um, you just double click and open the way you'd open any other project. Uh, the locking mechanism is, is sort of a first come first serve. You can hold a modifier to say, I want to open it as read only. Uh, if it's not being used by anybody else and you just double click it, you will open it with read and write access. Everybody else will still be able to access the content from that project, even if it's locked. So if there were source clips such as dailies in there and it's locked, I can still load my source clips into the source monitor, mark it in and out, cut them into a timeline within a project that I have a sequence uh, mm -hmm. that I have read and write access to. So, um, you know, that that's a fairly familiar paradigm for a lot of people. And again, that was sort of by design to make it a really simple, you know, uh, learning process and, and a really simple collaboration process. But um, as you kind of alluded to, there there is a lot of power under the hood and some of these nuanced finesse things that um, really make a difference in, in the overall workflow. And one of the things we took consideration to do is that if, if a sequence is locked, if you're working on it, Scott, and I open it, I can still export a list, I can play it back, I can you know, export an EDL, I can do all of these things with it, but I physically can't make changes to it. Um, and we, we know in some other systems that sometimes uh, it, it will let you go ahead and make changes even though something's locked, but then once you go to save, it says, oh, you can't actually save these changes, you have to do a save as, and then that has to be reconciled. So we've made sure like little things like that, uh, we've spent time addressing to make sure that uh, it's just a little more intuitive and efficient to make sure editors don't get themselves into those situations where an assistant might be staying late trying to reconcile changes between two different cuts. I got you. I got you. Can, can you still use the media browser? I assume you can still use the media browser to get into those if you want just to kind of look in the project, or is it literally like, no, you have to open the project? You could use the media browser. Um, it may be just as simple to open it, and, and again, it's going to open and read only. Like you mentioned, sound effects and some of those things break up. I mean, that, that's... Again, feedback from customers where we've had examples of customers said, I, you know, I had a lot of sound effects to preview and, um, you know, I, I was doing it kind of manually. So I just brought in 50,000 sound effects to my project, but now it's, it's behaving slower. <laughs> so, you know, we, we can kind of, again, componentize that project so that I can have a sound effects project separate from my media, separate from my sequences, my dailies, my, um, you know, my, my acts or reels or however I have my sequences divided up. And it, it again, it, it creates kind of a, a more flexible and fluid environment where these projects are smaller, they're lighter, I can go right to what I want to work on without having to worry about um, what anybody else is doing or however many con you know, projects or content is in there, I just go right to where the area I need to work and it's very efficient and very fast.
Gotcha, gotcha. Well, and, and it's it is meant to be worked off shared shared storage. I, I saw a, some article today where it says it's like Google Drive for Premiere projects. And my first thing when I think of Google Drive is, well, wait, that's cloud, that's cloud based, and that's I mean that's a whole other can of worms. But I don't see it as Google Drive for Premiere. I you know I, I think I see it as I mean it, it is meant to work off local shared storage. Like I don't I don't I, I see no cloud aspect no online aspect at all. And in fact, even I think the, the blog post mentions that you can, you can work on shared storage without an internet connection at all, which I'm sure will be very important to, um, you know, big Hollywood features. Yeah, that was definitely one of the considerations that we, uh, we took into account. And it, it, I don't know that Google Drive was a, um, was a perfect analogy. It, it certainly is, is not cloud-based, although it could be run in the cloud, which is really interesting because a lot of folks are going with uh, virtualized type of deployments, and that's, there's a lot of customers that are researching that or, or have already invested in that. We have some great partnerships there. So it'd be interesting to, to uh, and we have customers already testing this in a kind of virtualized cloud deployment, but comparing it to, to Google Docs, like we we actually experimented, you know, many years we've looked at collaboration and we tried a model where things would change live out from underneath an editor, and it was really, uh, really quickly apparent that this is not the <laughs> way. Our customers want to work, but within the production panel, I think there's a fair bit of analogy in there because, again, it's very fluid that uh, you and I can both be creating folders, renaming projects, creating new projects at the same time, and all of that's happening within the production panel uh, live, and you're instantly seeing the second I hit return and change the name of something, it's updated on your machine. So we are working in the production panel and sort of the administration and organization side of the production uh, is a little bit analogous to to maybe a Google a Google Doc, but um, as far as the productions work, it's still very careful to manage versions and that an editor has a sequence open. Nobody else is making changes to that sequence. That's really, really important that, um, you know, we're, we're getting sort of protecting the version management, intrinsic sort of version management that that offers. Gotcha, gotcha. Cool. When, uh, when might we see this uh, shipping? Um, the only thing we are allowed to say, although I wish I could say more, is it's coming soon. Um, so we, uh, we're, we're very close. We, we do have it in production now. We have um, some users using it. Um, we're very close to, uh, to getting it out to market. We couldn't be more excited, but uh, unfortunately, I just can't give you a date yet. Gotcha, totally. Uh, and uh, last question is, this will be, uh, this is just will be part of the regular Premiere architecture, or, or is there, is there um, like a, a fee on, like if you want productions, it's going to cost you extra? It's a great question because we've seen some, some posting and things about that. There, if you have Premiere Pro and some storage, you are good to go. There's no extra cost. There's no extra you know, a, a cloud component needed. There's there's nothing um, to add on to Premiere Pro or plugins, et cetera. It's going to be native within Premiere Pro. And with the newest version of Premiere Pro, that'll be coming out soon, as we said. Um, it's just going to be baked right into that. Awesome. Pan, thanks for taking some time to uh, chat with us about this, uh, about productions. Uh, I think you did answer some questions that we all had, and we will look for it, look, look for it in, our, uh, in our Creative Cloud app and uh, update when it comes out. Thank you so much, Scott, for, for having me on. It's really been a pleasure. I, I really you know, admire all the great work that you do, and uh, thanks for having me join your podcast. Yeah, thanks for, thanks for chatting. Hey, this is Damian Allen uh, with Pro Video Coalition. Scott and I are kind of separated by time zones today. He's uh, done a few other bits, and I'm actually here with Brian Hallett, who is uh, one of the experts on uh, Camera Tech. He writes a bunch of the review articles on Pro Video Coalition, and uh, we get to talk about 
a couple of new cameras. Uh, he had some time with the C500 Mark II. We'll get to talk about that. And also the new Sony FX9 and uh, the wonderful thing that that, that is. Um, but, you know, before we get started with that, I've kind of dabbled. I'm a visual effects guy, uh, been in visual effects for, gosh, 20, 25 years now. It's a little scary. But uh, I've spent some time schlepping cameras on sets and uh, did go through a little bit of the kind of digital camera revolution. But honestly, it's been a few years since I've been in the market to buy a camera myself. And it just seems like the market is just crazy. I mean, we, we're getting more stops. Everything's ridiculously cheap. Even the glass is getting cheap. Um, so, you know, moving into 2020, what does the landscape look like? Is this the time to buy a camera unless you absolutely need it for a job? I mean, what what, uh, what are we looking at in 2020, do you think, in terms of the kind of state of the art in cameras? I think, uh, you know, I think a lot of people have been like you, have not been in a market for a camera for two and a half to five years. I think, um, you know, five years ago, we had cameras that had could do could deliver 14 to 15 stops at dynamic range. Now we uh, have cameras that can do that as well. It's five years later, but we have features that make life easier. Um, we we also have larger sensors. We're kind of we're now into the full frame, you know, large format uh, filmmaking, and it's becoming more democratic and more available to everyone. And you know, I'm, I'm the same way. I mean, I, I love cameras and I would try to use the newest camera I can whenever I can. But this seems to be like a new chapter in uh, digital cinema. We have the FX9 from Sony, it's a full frame camera. And we have the C500 Mark II, a full frame camera, a large format. We have the Venice, which is for a much higher, I guess you could say clientele or professional. It's much more expensive. We have the C700 full frame. We've had that for a couple of years now. But what we have in these features of large format are all these, you know, specifications, features, whatever, autofocus, five axis, you know, stabilized sensors, things that make life easy, very easy for a cinematographer or photographer. Let's take the FX9, for example. Um, large format, full frame cinematography is tough to nail focus. And it's going to be tough if you're shooting on a prime lens at a 35 millimeter or an 85 millimeter and you're at a, you know, 2.8 or even an F4, it's still a very narrow depth of field. But with their new autofocus features, it's not really new, but improved, you can, if you use a Sony lenses, you can let the camera nail your focus and it will do a better job than you can. So if you're on a Steadicam and you're shooting a promo or commercial and you have someone walking through the city and in the past you'd have like a wireless focus system or wired, depending who's pulling it, but still it's an expensive piece of kit. And then if you're you know, really high up or doing really well, you might have someone like a second second AC, first AC will on focus for you with a wireless kit and wireless follow focus, pulling a monitor, you're sending it off camera, it's added wedding camera. If, if you take the FX9 and use their lenses, you can get very close to that cinematic high glass wired wireless focus and just do it all on camera. That's what's crazy. I've oh. seen some examples. I shot some examples myself where people walk into the camera. I can't nail that focus in Super 35, let alone um, large format. But the camera does it for you. And both Canon 
C500 Mark II and the FX9 have those features. And I, I feel like a lot of filmmakers are really going to start using those far more. They're not going to... You know, it's interesting you say that because typically uh, professional cinematographers will scoff at the idea of an autofocus because, you know, most people's idea of an autofocus is your 1990s uh, handy cam that's kind of constantly going in and out of sort of fuzzy focus as you're going. But, you know, if you don't have a full crew, it's it, it could save your life, right? Oh, absolutely. Could, and and especially older, a modern autofocus. Those older uh, autofocuses were contrast-based, and that's why, especially in low light, these, the camera is having to search for the edges of like contrast and figure out how far away and try to get sharp. Now we have um, pixels or infrared, I don't know the tech exactly, but the camera's able to tell how far away something is and how far it needs to pull its focus. So it's very fast. It can be faster than you. And um, yeah, I, I see a lot of people diving into this. I mean, there's, I shot most everything with the FX9 in, in all focus, most everything. Um, I did have like a Nikon lens on with a manual adapter. I shot some video of my daughter. And that was manual. And because I want to see how hard is it to, to roll focus on a 50 in full frame. And it's not easy. I mean, you, you can, it might look good on your, you know, your little loop or your little seven-inch monitor, but you put that on a 32-inch screen, you put that on a 55-inch screen, it's going to be out of focus. You know, you're going to see that. That's a tough, that's a bitter pill to swallow if you've had a big client shoot and you've been rolling focus yourself and then you watch it big on the client monitor and it's slightly out of focus. Let the camera feel Yeah. <laughs> Especially, obviously, if you've got a really uh, wide-open aperture. Yes. You, you know, and that's every bit of focus counts. We want that large format for that look, and yeah. okay, and but you know you got to you got to get it in focus, and, and the cameras now make that easier. A lot. So easier. let me let me ask a dumb question just on this whole thing. You know, you got someone looking at a new camera, and they're saying, "Hey, this Black Magic's saying it's got 15 stops, and it costs a grand or two or three grand, and you've got you know a high-end red on the other side that is costing 80 grand and looks like." It has similar specs. What? What? Uh, you know? What's the the big difference that between the, between the two? I think yeah. the difference is a, very similar to a muscle car and a, um, a race car, for example. Um, so, like anyone can go and buy a Charger, Challenger, and do zero to sixty and as fast as I can. It looks great. It's fast. It's fun, right? But if you get in an F L F one, you know, race car, or NASCAR. That car can turn fast too, whereas the off-the-market, off-the-dealer car isn't going to be able to handle that quite as much. It's just too much weight, and suspension's not right, and the wheels aren't right for that kind of racing. I think cameras are similar. You take like the pocket, you know, semi-camera 6K, which is a great camera for, especially for price. Um, but then, if you want to shoot cinema with it, like you do um, red, you know, helium. You got to add all this kit to it, and you have to add it to the red too. But the red is just kind of better fit for it, and the red is going to kind of give you a few more features that um, make your life easier. You know, Airy is very good at this. You can take, um, you know, a, you know, an Airy and all the accessories they they come out with wireless focus, everything they have, and suddenly your life is easy. And that is the, where we are. There's no reason to tough through something, you know, if you don't have to. Like Black Magic's great. I use it all the time. 
Um, I wish they had follow focus like the FX one. I really do, because I would use it more. Um, I mean, it's just the way it is. So on the uh, on these lower price cameras, obviously, like you said, some the the quality is exceptional across the board. So it's hard to really say low quality because they're not. They're 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 really high quality. But when they're when when some of those cheaper cameras are saying 14, 15, 16 stops, are you ex are you finding that's true, or do you think sometimes it's a bit of marketing hype? I think it's I think it's been mostly true. I think um, especially shooting raw. Um, you're gonna, you can dial in, you can squeeze in, you can pull back highlights and pull up shadows quite a bit. I think you have to kind of think more about noise. Right, um, right. Um, so you, know, you could have 16 stops, could, but it could be a noisy 16 stops, right? Yeah, I mean, like, if you're shooting 6K on the pocket 6K and you're going for 4K output, when you bring it into Resolve, you might see a little bit of noise if you're shooting at 4,000 ISO or 6,400. But when you when you kick it out at 4K, that noise is going to be slightly reduced because it's just right. oversampling. Um, you know, FX9 4000 ISO is it's it's one of its natives. It's it's clean, and um, you know I, you know, it's great to also have a camera that shoots 15 stops dynamic range. But if you're shooting it for broadcast, um, unless you're going to sit down and color grade it before you put it on an air, it's most really going to, you know, utilize that 15 stops if you're in a hurry. They're going to go for their the basic and get it done and make that look good. I mean, truth of that. Yeah. Awesome. So it sounds like 2020 is a good time to buy a camera. I mean, it's, 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 you, at some point, if you need the camera, you buy the camera, right? And, yeah. uh, and I will say that if you, if you check out Pro Video Coalition and even just kind of Google Brian's articles, you've, you've reviewed everything and anything just about, or certainly a, a lot of the, the recent cameras. So you've got some good rundowns on what the pros and cons are of each one. Yeah, and I think what it, we're at, like, so if you're going to invest in your own camera, um, the prices seem to really fit. The C500 Mark II is 16000 you know, 15999 and the accessories are not very expensive, um, with the exception of the um, EVF. The Sony FX9 is essentially 11000 um, Those are very easy hurdles for an owner-operator to, to you know, jump over um, when it comes to cost. And those are two cameras that um, the their older brothers and sisters have lasted for quite a while for owner operators. Like the FS7 is still very popular in my area, as is a C300 Mark II. And I even know a network shooter who still shoots with a C300 Mark I. Wow. Why change now, what's this, uh, what's this whole kind of camera glut done with the rental market? Uh, oh, um, a friend of mine, is he owns a rental shop. And, um, you know, one of the things I've noticed with him is he, he makes sure he delivers cameras to people essentially can't or can can afford to buy. So the Airy right. Mini F is one of his you know, recent purchases. But he also keeps like a Blackmagic Ursa Mini G2 as a B camera for it. Because it's a great B camera for the Airy Mini you know, Alexa Mini. Um, and it's a great lower um, option. But if you look at his rentals that go out, the camera is part of it, but it's the lenses, the matte boxes, right, right, right. all this which, other stuff. That makes which like still, that. even though there are affordable versions, those those super magic lenses still are crazy money. Yeah, right? yeah. I mean, you look at that uh, Canon Sumeray prime set. Each one of those is seventy four hundred dollars. I used, I was lucky enough to use some of those lenses, and they're 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 good. They they have like wide open, a dreamy quality, but they're seventy four hundred dollars. Yeah. So if you can yeah. rent it, rent what you need. Um, that's Don't very, drop it. Yeah, very budget friendly. Yeah, get your insurance. <laughs> yeah. 
Okay, let's uh, let's talk FX9. Uh, tell me about the FX9. What what your experience was? It's it's very similar to the FS7 in build, um, slightly longer. So if you have cases that fit the FS7, it might be a tight fit. I think the color, the new Cinetone um, color, is fantastic. The autofocus is fantastic. Um, the headaches I had with the original FS7 between the extension arm and how you can't put the camera on the ground if you have the hand grip on, unless you roll it all the way back. And the loop are the two weaknesses for me. Um, they're not big weaknesses. Um, easily get over, easy to get uh, the Zakudo extension arm, which is a button, you can flip it back. So it's very easy as opposed to undoing a knob. But the color and the easeability of shooting are through the roof. I think it's a very good camera. Anyone who buys it or rents it is going to be very pleased with what they get. I mean, hands down, autofocus is mind-blowing. What I feel like they they kind of missed the boat on is the full-frame, um, high-frame-rate recording. At this time, you can only record full-frame at 30p. And if you want to go 60p, you have to go down to Super 35. It's okay. I feel like in my reading and my research that they will provide a a high frame and option later to the full right. range. And uh, I think that's kind of one big thing missing right now. You know, that's one thing that is really interesting. I've, I've noticed is it is amazing how much uh, these guys manage to pull off in firmware updates, uh, where obviously they figure out just streamlined ways of getting the data through and things like that. But uh, that seems to me like you can almost get a whole new camera six months in sometimes with some of these models. Yeah, yeah, I think uh, Blackmagic has really kind of led the charge with this. With their yeah, free yeah. firmware between Resolve and all their cameras. Um, I mean, take the broadcast camera they have. It's admittedly not my favorite of the, of the group. And the Ursa Mini G2 and the Pocket 16 4KR. But they've kept updating that camera, and it's much more user-friendly now with its Blackmagic raw recordings, um, which, you know, it's... It's a new style camera, it's a production style camera, but it's just free update. Here you go. We're going to give you a full, you know, full resolution raw recording at, you know, 12.1 or Q5 or Q0, which is amazing. Yeah. All right. Um, C500 Mark II. Now, you spent some time with that. Admittedly, not as much time as you'd probably like to really uh, grill it, but uh, what did you find? I, I, uh, I, I found that camera to be built for a shooter. Um, I feel like really? Sony's built for people who are companies that are going to buy cameras for shooters. Um, Canon made a, a camera for shooters to buy. And um, it's uh, the, a lot of features in it just make life easy. The autofocus, the five axis stabilized sensor. Um, it's all the color. Um, you get raw light, like you do the C200, which um, if you get the C700 full frame, you have to have a whole different setup from Codex to have raw. Raw light I, I found to be very good. And um, I even used an ACES workflow just to kind of pull, you know, see what I could do with it. And I was very impressed. I, I also love what the build of the C500, how you can just hold it in your hand and you can hold it right here in your hand like this. And um, I like that kind of medium format film kind of shooting. The loop and the handle on the past cameras have been a weak point. They have fixed that. This is a very solid camera and it is going to last years for an owner operator. And here's another thing I want to mention. Finally, Canon has made a user changeable lens mount. You can go EF, locking EF or PL. It took two minutes for a 
friend of mine had changed the, the mount without ever seeing it. With walking up to it with a hex, change it, done. We went from EF to PL in two minutes on set. Wow. That's, that's, that's you know, it's interesting what you say just about this being built for shooter. So many people seem to kind of just look at the specs and how fast can it shoot roar and how big and but a huge part of this really is just the the fun the usability of the camera right just being able to pick up get the shot in time not have to fiddle around for three hours trying to set things up i mean you can't understate how important that whole aspect of a camera is it's got to be easy that's the thing i think um i would like to see some other manufacturers make a camera that's easy and right. um, you know canon and sony and black magic in many ways have really i mean everyone's kind of figured out they're easy the, right now, the Canon to me was the easiest to make cinema quality footage. Um, pull the camera. Well, we've, at, at Moviola, we've been putting together a, a new set of camera guides where you have five, 10 second videos showing you exactly where the white balance is. So you can kind of get acquainted and find out how to format a card with, um, with uh, you know, within five seconds instead of having to drill through menus and figure it out on set. But one of the things we, we noticed with the Canon is so many of the those functions have a dedicated button on the side. You, you, you're not drilling through menus like you used to. It's like, bang, there's your white balance or, or whatever. I was, I was really surprised, um, which is kind of what you're talking to, right? Yeah, I love the buttons on the side. The Sony has more buttons that you, you can assign, but you have to like preset up your camera you have to assign those buttons to what you right. want. Not marks, and that so. presets sound like a great idea, but it, unless you've got you know, the time and you're always with that camera, that's a whole other sort of afternoon you have to set aside to really think that through and work out what you do and don't want. So sometimes that's great, but the idea of having buttons that are on every unit that are just fixed is, is actually probably not a bad thing. I think it's a great thing. I, I want someone, like sometimes you get hired for a documentary, I did not too long ago, where the, here's the camera, um, you shoot it in 20 minutes. And you're like, yeah. oh, okay. <laughs> And and you spend as much time as you can getting to know, you know, who's changed the buttons last, who used it last. Yeah, week. yeah. Start on that party list, like focus or ISO, white balance, and uh, that can be anxiety, anxiety inducing. Yeah, you only have to get one thing, you know, especially if you're not shooting raw and you get the white balance wrong, uh, it can be a total nightmare. It can be, and you don't want to, you don't want to get that call from the editor, like, why yeah. is this this way? What'd you do? And you're like, <laughs> What am I supposed to do with yellow? <laughs> yeah. Uh, that's awesome. Well, uh, thanks for your time, Brian. Uh, obviously, Brian's got some amazing articles up there. He's got, uh, you, now you, you're about to come out with one for the uh, C500 Mark II? Yeah, C500 Mark II. I'm going through my raw footage and uh, the 4K footage I shot. Um, I shot some downtown Nashville, um, which is an admittedly grungy place. And uh, the, I shot with an 85 millimeter. And I, that seemed to make that city just come alive with the bouquet and the color and that canon color looks so good. Um, and then I have um, a bunch of accessories to write about um, for the Blackmagic Pocket Cinema Camera 4K and 6K. Wooden camera has loaned me a bunch of stuff to make that camera ready to be pulled out of a kit and shooting within a second. Very that, cool. That's a key, I think, for a lot of stuff. And then I have um, some DZO film, the 20 to 70 uh, millimeter Mark IV that's coming up too. Awesome. Uh, thank you very much, Brian, and uh, we'll check those articles out on ProVideoCoalition.com. Okay, thank you. All right, see ya.